Acts chapter 17. And then if you want, you could put your finger in Romans chapter 13, which we will come to at the very end of the sermon. Last Sunday, we began a series, Where Do We Go From Here? And I argued that we must begin by answering the question, Who are we? And we started by stating that we are those who are called, first, in that God has called us and is calling us to life and faith in Jesus Christ, Secondly, that God has called and is calling us to a certain kind of life, ordained and imposed on man by God for the common good. The more common word that is used in today's world is vocation. Uh, I prefer calling, as I've mentioned several times, because vocation can be seen as a product. I have a vocation rather than a response. God is calling and I am responding. By the way, if there's a vocation, you choose the vocation. If there's a calling, it means there is someone who calls, and that someone is God. In a real sense, the secular use of the word vocation is inappropriate because they do not believe that there is someone who calls. The biblical view is that God is the author of our callings. When we hear words like ordained and imposed, we might object. Why do we say that calling is something that has been ordained and imposed on us by God? But consider the alternatives. Your situation, your career is a result of sheer chance. Or your situation or your career is a result of your own will and choices. As we saw last week, even before God called us to be his children, he was already calling us to a particular way of life. And Paul's principle that we saw in 1 Corinthians 7 is stay as you are. If you were a slave when you became a Christian, then stay as a slave. Unless you can get your freedom, you can do so. And if you were a free man when you became a Christian, stay that way. Don't think, oh, I've got to change my status in life. We do not need to change our relationships to society or with one another because the big change that has occurred is our relationship with God. And now our relationship with one another and with others is transformed, is given new meaning because we are Christians. It doesn't have to be changed. So we begin the series by saying, we are those who are called by God. It's not a statement of pride, but really of humility, because this recognizes that we would never come to God unless God, in fact, had called us to be his people. And we are those who belong to the church. So it's not simply a collection of individual Christians running around. We are, in fact, a family. We belong to the body. We are God's people. Today we continue in this series, Who Are We? And our text is, I think, fairly well known. It's Paul's presentation of the gospel in Mars, on Mars Hill, the Areopagus in Athens. It is unique because we find Paul here speaking to people who have never heard of the true God. They worship many gods, but they've never heard of the true God. And how do you present the gospel to someone who has never heard of the true God? I won't read his entire speech, but only verses 22 to 28, and our focus, our text, will be verse number 26. Acts 17, beginning at verse 22. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I, found, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. 
Now what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. I mentioned last Sunday that we might prefer that we lived in another time. Oftentimes you hear people say, yeah, I was born in the wrong century. I was born at the wrong time. Um, I think we'd prefer to be born when there wasn't a pandemic. But God has chosen the time in which we are to live, when we should live. And he has chosen where we should live. He determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. That is, he has chosen for us to live in this country. Whether we are citizens or not, God has put us in this country, and we are Americans. This is ordained and imposed by God as our, as our, our callings. And again, people might object, but consider the options, the alternatives, that you are where you are because of the choice of others, say, for example, your parents, or you are where you are as a result of your own will and choice. Two factors come into play. We are a nation of immigrants, no one would deny that. And we are a very mobile society, moving around a lot. And as such, we may question Paul's assertion, it may sound strange and even counterintuitive to us, that God has determined the exact places we should live. And we would say, well, not so sure about that. But we need to take into account that God is in control. It is God who arranges the circumstances of where we live, where we might move to, and who your neighbors are or will be. This past week, um, a presentation was made uh, online of the history of this area of Dayton Heights. It's really a marvelous story of people who moved here beginning in the 19th century, and the neighbors that grew close together They never, I think, could have imagined that they would be neighbors, but God, in fact, has arranged our circumstances where we live and those who will live around us. So we are Americans, and there's a lot that goes into that, but I want us to consider one of the aspects, or so it is supposed, of being an American. And that is, as an American, we are said to have religious freedom or freedom of religion. This is what I want to talk about today as we talk about who we are. In doing so, I want to pose and then try to answer four questions. First of all, is Christianity a religion? We talk about freedom of religion or religious freedom. Is Christianity a religion? The answer is no. This is something that we examined in a meditation on religion as well as in our studies of James chapter 1. In his 2009 book, Uh, The Myth of Religious Violence, Secular Ideology, and the Roots of Modern Conflict, William Kavanaugh wrote in the second chapter, um, second chapter, by the way, is entitled The Invention of Religion, 
Outside of the modern West, there is no significant concept equivalent to what we think of as religion. This echoes what was written back in, in 1962 by Wilford Cantwell Smith, in which he points out that in the modern West, religion is seen as a discrete category of human activity and it is separated or can be separated from culture, politics, and other areas of life. And then he goes on to say it is an invention of the modern West. Kavanaugh observes that no ancient language has a word that approximates what modern English call religion. So it's a modern construct. And how does the modern West view religion? Interestingly, in the West, we have decided that it is the government who will define religion. And what we find is the following, that the government makes a distinction between church agencies and um, which serve a religious function, such as churches or mosques or temples, okay, and those that serve a social function, like schools, hospitals, orphanages, and the such. The implication is that religion is not something that is essentially social. It may be, but then as we'll see, that becomes very restricted. In liberal societies, religion is defined as a matter of beliefs about the transcendental and only indirectly affects society, you know, social things as well as politics. It means that, in fact, religion has no immediate social effect. Then we see that religion is defined in terms of conscience. It's defined in terms of belief about the transcendent, the otherworldly, but then also a matter of conscience. So it doesn't deal with the physical world. Okay? It's, it's that which is ethereal, that which is in your mind, your belief system, or your conscience. In doing so, the modern West says that those who see religion as being part of life you know, politics, economics, everything, that those who see that are from pre-modern world. They're primitive, okay? They're undeveloped. They're out of touch with modernity. It is the modern world that understands and defines religion correctly, or so it says. And sadly, the church has gone along with such views, but we should not. In John chapter 4, we have the familiar story of the Samaritan woman at the well, Jesus and his disciples are traveling from Judea in the south to Galilee in the north. They have to pass through, if you wish, hostile territory, the Samaritans uh, area, Samaria. And they stop in a town called Sychar. It's about noon. The disciples go into town to find food, and Jesus sits by a well, and he rests. And a woman comes, a Samaritan woman comes to get water from the well. This is unusual because it's the middle of the day. It's noon. It's hot. But as we see, because of her reputation, she doesn't want to associate with the other women in the town. Jesus asks her for water. This seems unusual because he's Jewish and she's a Samaritan woman. They have a conversation. And in this conversation, we hear, Sir, I, see, I can see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus declared, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. 
You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming, and has now come, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship him in spirit and in truth. To boil it down in the context of our sermon, the woman is looking for religion. She asked Jesus about religion. He changes the entire perspective of the matter. He is there to proclaim the truth, not a religion. Nowhere in the New Testament is the Christian faith presented as a religion. Religion is needed when there is a wall of separation between God and man. But Jesus came and pulled that wall down, the wall of separation, and he has inaugurated a new life, not a new religion. This is one of the reasons why the early Christians, who had been freed from pagan religion, in the traditional sense of the word, were accused by pagans of being atheists. Early Christians were called atheists because they didn't have a religion. Okay? Christians had no concern for sacred geography, that is holy ground, no specific interest in places where Jesus had lived, no pilgrimages like, hey, let's go to Nazareth and see where Jesus grew up, or let's go to the Jordan River to see where he was baptized. There's no need for temples. Christ's body is the church itself, and new people gathered in him were, in fact, the new temple. As such, the Christian faith is the end of religion. Why? Because in Jesus Christ, the life that was lost to us, which could only be symbolized and signified and asked for in religion, is now given to us freely by the Lord Jesus. But the modern West insists on holding on to the term religion. And it says, in fact, that it is a private interior Impulse. It's something you feel inside. It's interesting that a lot of people have rejected the notion of being religious. They call themselves spiritual. But in fact, in the modern modern West, the two words are synonymous. It's something that's interior, something that's private. And sadly, it is the church, I think, that has gone along with this, something that is radically different from the gospel. In the modern world, religion has come to mean a system of doctrine and intellectual propositions with emphasis of belief over practice. So creeds, not deeds, as the expression was in the 19th century. It is what you believe. It is interesting, Smith notes in his book, with the rise of the concept of religion in some ways, it has, in fact, been reflected in a decline in religious practices. So at the same time the West is saying religion, religion, this is what religion is, at the same time people in fact have turned away from what the West defines as religion. So is the Christian faith a religion? No. Second question, what is the basis of all political authority? And this perhaps is the question in this whole matter. In the modern West, and that includes us in the United States, Politics is seen as an expression of the will of the people. It's not grounded in something transcendent, something higher than us, something divine. Okay? 
And this sets a stage for politics to become completely secularized and to become idolatrous, as we've seen. It sets up politics or political authority as a way to secure our own essentially private, remember religion is that private impulse, okay, and local non-political purposes. And as a result, we find two things. One is idolatry and the other is authoritarianism, where the government is telling you everything that you must do. The biblical view is radically different. In Romans 13, which we will come to at the end of the sermon, the first verse, Paul writes, everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. There's a lot to glean from this passage, Um, but let's begin with the reality that it is the infinite personal God, the transcendental God, the Lord God Almighty, who is the one who has established political authority. Among other truths we find in this passage is that the duties of the political authority are to protect its people and to execute and maintain justice. God is the source of all political authority. We hear this when Jesus stood before Pilate. This is from John. Don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? This is Pilate speaking. Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Political authority comes from God. We hear this from Daniel. When Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, he can't remember the dream, but he's troubled. And Daniel prays and God reveals the dream and the meaning of the dream. Then Daniel praised the God of heaven and said, Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He sets up kings and deposes them. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. Strictly speaking, the world is a theocracy. It is ruled by God. Well, this is not how the modern mind thinks. And in fact, theocracy has become a hated word. One might even say hate speech. If we accept the modern view of political authority, several things come into play. First of all, political authority is seen as ultimate. It is the ultimate authority. It is the highest authority, and it dictates what everyone below it can and must do. Secondly, political authority becomes in some ways transcendent. It is higher, it's above everything else, and oftentimes is not seen as subject to the laws that it is imposing on those below it. Thirdly, politics becomes a god, an idol. We looked at this last October in the series, The Christian in Politics, and just to review, to remind you of some of what we saw. All modern conceptions of political authority are based on ideology or ideologies. Ideology refers to a set of political beliefs that shape the way we view the world, the way we think, and the way that we act. But ideologies in the modern manifestation is in fact what in the ancient world was called idolatry. Idolatry is that which in some ways tries to imitate in some fashion the biblical narrative of redemption. 
we may tend to think of ideologies or ideologies as something that is theoretical, that is abstract, somewhat static. Um, if you Google the word, you will find, among other things, ideology is a set of shared beliefs. It is a system of ideas and ideals. But if we accept that ideologies are in fact a form of idolatry, then they are attempting to present a counterfeit form of God. And God has not revealed himself by ways of abstract or theoretical propositions, a system of ideas or ideals. Instead, what we find in scripture is a narrative, as a story, creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. In every ideology, we find the same pattern. Except usually they don't begin with creation, that'll, that'll come later, and maybe even the fall. They'll start with redemption. That is to say, things are messed up and we're going to fix them. Why are they messed up? Well, then they go back to the fall. And at some point, they may or may not get back to where it all started, but then they all have a destination, a telos of where it's all going. This is critical, I think, for us to understand that because modern political thinking, ideologies have rejected the transcendent God and his story, they must create their own story. They must do so. People live by stories, not by ideas, by stories. This is just critical for us to see. The biblical record is of God's intervention in human history to save his people. And ideologies have this pseudo-narrative in which they are going to save the people. They are going to redeem them to get them out of the mess that they are in. Every ideology is based on a specific doctrine of salvation. They have worked out, at least in their minds, a way of you being delivered from your terrible situation. If salvation is always viewed from, as being from something that is evil, the question is, what is evil and what is the source of that evil? And then ideologies will go back and point to a specific person or a specific event and say, that's where it all began to blow up. And, you know, before, which is really ridiculous because are you saying before that it was, everything was fine and then somebody did something wrong and, and blew it up? But remember, they're an ideology. They are, an, they are idolatrous, and they are seeking to create their own system of salvation. In the process, goals replace principles. There are principles, no question. But in fact, if they're telling a story of how to get, make things better, that's the goal, they might have to cut some corners and do things that aren't right in the big scheme of things, but that's okay because you know, the end justify the means. And so we want justice. When do we want it? Now. But in the process, we might have to do some injustice. We might have to do some criminal acts so we can get to a place of justice. Okay? This is, this is what idolatry is all about. Consider ancient uh, idolatries in which they killed their children, sacrificed their children. It's like, what are you thinking? Well, it's something you have to do to get to the goal that you want. 
And if you get to the goal, if you get to the telos, what is the telos? What is all modern political thinking about? If you listen really carefully, you can hear echoes of what Satan said to Eve. You will become gods. That human beings will then become the masters of their own destiny. We will become gods. That, in fact, does not happen. It will not happen. But there's something more insidious that happens. We hear this in Psalm 115 and 135. Those who make them, that is idols, will be like them. And so will all who trust in them. If you follow an idolatrous system, if you worship an idol, you will become like the thing that you worship. And many ideologies in the 20th century have in fact been vicious. They have been even criminal in what they've done. And those who worship them become just like them. By the way, I said earlier that the word theocracy is a hated word, but in fact, modern political systems are theocracies. They see themselves as God and they will tell people how they are to live their lives. How does this all happen? Well, there are three false assumptions that have come into play. That the state is natural. It's not. It's constructed. That society gives rise to the state. It's actually the other way around, but that's for another sermon. And thirdly, that the state is just a limited part of society. In reality, the idolatrous, ideologically driven political authority sucks all of society under its authority and will tell people what to do. And as a result, everything becomes political. Have you noticed that in the last few years? Everything is political. Everything. Bob Dylan, this is back in 1989 in his album, Oh Mercy, the first song is entitled Political World. And in a typically Dylan-esque fashion, it has 11 verses. I won't read them all, but he says, we live in a political world, the one we can see and feel. But there's no one to check. It's all a stacked deck. We all know for sure that it's real. We live in a political world, turning and a thrashing about. As soon as you're awake, you're trained to take what looks like the easy way out. So what is the basis of political authority? As Christians, we say it is God. But the people around us say, no, in fact, it rests in the state itself. Third question. Do we have freedom of religion in this country? Well, I I want to begin by reiterating what I said at the beginning, the first question, that Christian faith is not a religion. So having said that, it has been argued that there is a constitutional right to religious freedom. But we need to understand that when people say that, they are saying it as a political right. That religious freedom, freedom of religion, is a political right meaning that it is defined by the state, not by the people, but by the state. And it is framed in terms of public versus private. Remember the private interior impulse? Yeah, that's what religion is. That's what religion can do. So the right to religious freedom turns into a right of free exercise only in the private sphere. 
Sometimes, sometimes in the social sphere, in society, but that is, getting, that is shrinking day by day as the state imposes limitations. So the public sphere, going to the store, driving on the freeway, going to school, all these things, this belongs to the state. This is secular. And then the private thing, the thing when you do alone and you pray in your heart or whatever, that private interior impulse, that's religion, and you have the freedom to do that. As one writer put it, religious freedom, uh, sorry, religious belief and practice are constitutionally protected as long as they remain within the limits of the private and social spheres. It hasn't been that long in the last 10 or 15 years that the government has argued about, or the arguments about the free exercise of religion um, make clear that they state, the United States government, will determine what is religion and what is not. The Health and Human Services mandate has been seen not as restricting religious liberty, but in fact clarifying what it says is religion and what is not. So churches, synagogues, mosques, etc., are entitled, as always, to exemption. Okay, they say this is you have religious freedom. Okay, so you don't have to provide insurance coverage for services that violate your principles based on the concept of free exercise of religion. By the way, this is changing radically, even as we speak, in which now churches are being told that they do not have the right not to hire certain people. But let's go on. But schools, hospitals. Charities and other agencies that are affiliated with such congregations have been redefined as not essentially religious and therefore not exempt from the mandates under the principle of religious freedom. In other words, if you have a hospital, if you have, let's say, a Catholic hospital, and according to their way of seeing things from Scripture, abortion is wrong, they will not perform abortion. The state says, no, you're not a church. You're not a religion. You do not have the right to say no. So then the state is, in fact, defining what is religion. And I would say, in doing so, there is no freedom of religion. The implication is that religion is not something that is essentially social. It is something that is private. So to answer the question, do we have freedom of religion, the answer is no, we do not. You may have noticed it was quite subtle that an earlier administration shifted the language from freedom of religion to freedom of worship, thereby limiting religion to what the state deems to be worship. Obviously, there's a lot more that could be said about this, but let's go to the fourth and final question. Do we want freedom of religion? The answer is no. We do not. If we begin with the opening premise that the Christian faith is not a religion, then it stands to reason that we do not want to accede or to defer to the state the authority which belongs to God alone. As one writer put it, religion is defined in liberal society as a matter of beliefs about the otherworldly and only indirectly applies to the social and political. In Thomas Jefferson's words, Belief in one God, or twenty, neither picks my pocket nor breaks my legs. In other words, religion has no immediate social effect. Do we want freedom of religion? No, we do not. Stanley Harawas, 
uh, Christian thinker, professor at Duke, um, emeritus now. He says that freedom of religion carries with it subtle temptations. The First Amendment, when interpreted against the backdrop of political liberalism, has had disastrous results for church and society. He goes on to say, I hope it will be clear that I'm not suggesting we repeal the First Amendment. The First Amendment could be a politically significant way for a state to acknowledge those public enterprises so essential to the public will that they should be protected from the command of the government. In other words, the church is to be in the public square. Freedom of religion is a temptation, albeit a subtle one. It tempts us as Christians to believe that we have been rendered safe by legal mechanisms. It is subtle because we believe that our task as Christians is to support the ethos necessary to maintaining the mechanism. That we are seen as supporting the status quo. As a result, we lose the critical skills formed by the gospel to know when we have voluntarily qualified our loyalty to God in the name of the state. We thus become tolerant, allowing our convictions to be relegated to the realm of the private. The religion we have in America is one that has been domesticated. On the presumption, on the presumption that only a domesticated religion is safe to be free in America. Only a domesticated religion can have freedom of religion. He concludes by saying, rather than being a church that could be capable of keeping the state limited, Christianity in America became a religion in the service of the state, which then promised it freedom. If what the U.S. government calls freedom of religion is offered to us, we would say, no, thank you. What we have comes from God and not from you. In a recent book I mentioned last week, Live Not by Lies, a Manual for Christian Dissidents, Robert Dreyer recounts how Sylvester Kirch Mary was put on trial under uh, communist authorities in Czechoslovakia. The prosecutors called him a liar for saying that Czechoslovaks had no religious freedom. You're allowed to go to church and to worship, aren't you? They taunted. Dreyer continues, a barb that contemporary U.S. progressives toss at conservatives who argue for religious freedoms. So you might be wondering, thinking, so Damon, what is this all about? What does this all mean? Well, let's begin with what we've seen thus far, okay? We are to know who we are. We are those who are called to faith and life in Christ by the grace of God. God has adopted us into his family. We are his children. We are those who have callings. God has given us specific skills, certain abilities, certain desires, and he has put us in place where we can do, we can use those gifts he has given us. He has called us to a particular way of life. And as we saw from Paul, even before we became Christians, God had given these things to us. He didn't wait until we became Christians to give us skills. We had those skills all along. We are people who live in the United States. This is where God has determined we should live. As those who live in the United States, and if we are citizens, we are to recognize God as king. He is the ultimate authority. Uh, some years back, Ben spoke on this, how hard it is for American believers to think of God as king. 
because you know we fought against the British and the whole monarchy and the kings and all that. And so that is almost repugnant to us. And so when you say God is king, some people really sort of push back against that. But God is the final authority. If you cannot accept the word king, he is the final authority. And he is the basis of all political authority, whether they recognize it or not. We also recognize our responsibility, our obligations to obey those who are in authority under God. This is where you can turn now to Romans chapter 13. And this is what Paul writes to the Roman believers. I'll read verses 1 through 7. Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and he will commend you. For he is God's servant to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant, an agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also because of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who will give their full time to governing. Give everyone what you owe him. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. You'll notice that at least three times in this passage, political authorities are referred to as God's servants. They are his agents. They are the ones who have the function of protecting us and executing judgment. But, and this is where Christians begin to quibble with one another, political authority is not absolute. The modern world may think in those terms, and I think that's crept into the church as well. Um, Political authority is not absolute. We should not read Romans 13, 1 through 7 and say, whatever the U.S. government says, I have to do. Not at all, because God is the ultimate authority. And as the apostles said to the Sanhedrin, we obey God rather than man. If there's a conflict, if the state says this is what you must do, we say, no, I'm sorry, we obey God, not you. But we cannot say, well, because... I obey God, I don't have to listen to anything you say. No, absolutely not. They are God's servants. Can you imagine what human society would be like without governing authorities? In light of the fall, I think we would have chaos. That's for another subject. But the reality is we cannot excuse. And I remember reading or hearing of a gentleman back east who decided that because he obeyed God God rather than man, he wasn't going to follow the speed limits anymore. He was following his conscience, and his conscience said he didn't have to follow the speed limits. Well, no. The governments are God's servants to protect the people and to execute justice. Okay? The state cannot define who we are. Okay? The state cannot tell us legitimately what we can and cannot do. 
and the state cannot dictate our actions as God's people. But we must remember and take to heart what Paul wrote in 1 Timothy chapter 2. I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Remember several years ago, six years ago, it's been a while, that I worked, you may remember, in Brunei, teaching there at the university with the ASEAN project, and I attended the one licensed Protestant church in the capital. Only one church was licensed. It's a Muslim country. And yet every Sunday during the time for prayer, which in, that, in their system, it would be someone from the congregation, not the pastor. Along with all the prayer requests, every Sunday they prayed for the sultan. They prayed for his counselors, for those in political authority, that God would give them wisdom. You might say, well, wait a minute, this is, this is someone who is not a Christian, someone who only allows one legal Protestant church. By, by the way, there was also only one Catholic church allowed licensing was across the street from the Protestant church. And in talking with people in the congregation, they freely admitted there are probably spies in our congregation. There are people to see what we're doing, what we say here. And yet every Sunday they prayed for the sultan and those in authority. And we should do so as well. I think the fact that ideologies become idols, we've seen certainly in the last four or five years, on both the left and the right, progressives and conservatives, in which it's like a matter of life and death. And my question is to them, do you pray for the president? Do you pray for the mayor, the governor? Do you pray for those who are in positions of authority? Paul says that we should. We have brothers and sisters today who live under harsh political systems, who are not at liberty to worship as we do. What should we do as American Christians? We are Christians, we are those called by God, we are the church, we are Americans. What should we do? Well, I'll tell you what we should not do. We should not put our hope in so-called freedom of religion. We're okay, we have freedom of religion, we're okay. No. Our hope and our faith are to be in God because he is the ultimate authority. He is our God. Let's not forget that. Let's pray together. Our Father, in many ways, we live in confusing times in which everything, it seems, has been politicized. Indeed, in Dylan's words, we live in a political world. Everything. In the process, I think we've been blinded to see what has happened, that your authority has been pushed aside, at least in people's minds. And the government, the state, is seen as being all-powerful. And I think whether one is from the left or the right, this is still true. And the question is what the government should dictate, not whether or not it should, but what should it dictate. And as your people, we have lost sight of who we are. 
We are your people. You have called us. You have given us callings, skills, abilities. We are grateful. And you have put us here. Many of us began our lives thousands of miles away from this city. And yet here we are. It's, we may have made choices to come here, but it is in your providence. You have dictated, you have determined where we should live. And here we are. This is where you've put us. And we are to be your lights in a world of darkness, a world darkened by idolatry. It is, I think, the never-ending temptation to put our faith, our hope, in something other than you. Whether it be in ourselves, our own abilities, or in others, their abilities, in the state. That we feel secure because of the First Amendment. We feel secure because we have freedom of religion. May we think on these things in the days to come. Christian faith is not a religion. That political authority ultimately comes from you. That in a real sense, we do not have freedom of religion in this country. And we don't want it. We are grateful for the liberties, for the protection, for the safety that the state provides nationally as well as locally. But our faith is to be in you. We are citizens of your country. You are our king. Yes, we are citizens in this country and we will obey the laws. But when push comes to shove, we obey you rather than men. As we continue to consider where do we go from here, may we have a better and a deeper understanding of who we are as your people. I thank you for this time, the first day of a new week, that we're able to worship you. I do thank you for the liberty to meet publicly. We are grateful to you that we have, in fact, that liberty. And we pray for our brothers and sisters around the world, even today, who don't have this, we have to meet in secret. But you're still king. May we always remember that. May your spirit and your grace go with us. As we leave this place, as we walk through the world in the coming week. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.